0: Well, let, let it, let's start. Uh, lesson 9 on our study through the person of Christ, an introduction. This is on chapter 7. I don't know that we're going to get through this whole chapter. I probably should have broke this one into two. I, um, did you see the outline, by the way? Uh, at the end of it, I go, etc., 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 page 140. I ran out of space, and I ran out of steam, too, to be quite honest with you. So we'll see how far this goes, how far we get, rather. We might break it into two lessons. Um, Anyways, so let's open in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, do help us in this time, help us to understand this obviously crucial doctrine. Uh, We need uh, to not only love Jesus Christ and have faith in him, but we need to understand him. And so help us to understand who he is and why he needed to be this in order to save us from our sins. Uh, do give us understanding where it is possible, where there is mystery. I pray that you would give us faith and the ability to simply trust. Um, but Lord, we pray that you would teach us from the scriptures. And we do thank you for this resource, which uh, makes these difficult things somewhat clear. We are grateful, Lord, and we pray that you would help us now in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, this chapter is a little bit unique compared to the rest. Um, that we've dealt with so far, and the ones that are coming in the future, and that it's addressing <coughs> current challenges to the doctrine of Christ. And so, th- there are two um, two ideas that are out there in the church today that are put before us, and then contrasted with uh, Orthodox Christ- uh, Christology as articulated by Chalcedon. And so, the chapter is pretty technical; it's pretty detailed. I will I will admit that. Um, But I think it is helpful to do this sort of thing, to look at what's out there today and to say, you know, there are still some errors in the church today uh, concerning the doctrine of Christ that we need to be aware of and and weary of. Uh, So let's begin. Uh, Christological orthodoxy is challenged today in two directions, Wellam says. First, outside historic Christianity, the Jesus of the Bible, along with the creeds, is rejected as either implausible or simply false. So it's challenge, the doctrine of Christ is challenged from outside the church, obviously. Um, people will critique uh, the Bible. They will look at the Bible and claim that it is foolishness. Uh, those who perhaps have a liberal theology will say they believe in the Bible, but then they'll break it down and critique it and only take portions of it and, and, and reject other parts of it. That's been going on for a long, long time and it should not surprise us, but we need to be aware of the assaults that come on the doctrine of Christ from outside uh, the Orthodox Church. Uh, but here this chapter is focusing more on the um, trouble within the Church. And Wellam says that uh, some accept the Creed, uh, the Chalcedonian Creed, and the Nicene Creed before that, as a basic rule of faith, but then revise its theology significantly, this challenge is the concern of this chapter. And we'll come to this, but I I think it's important for you to be aware of this general danger where Christians will use terms that are orthodox, but when you listen really carefully to what they say, they, they use the terms that are orthodox, but they change the meaning of them. And that could be very difficult to detect. That sort of false teaching could be very difficult to detect. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, let, let me use maybe a, a real obvious example of this that it, it has cropped up over and over again in the history of the church and even in recent times, but it has to do with the doctrine of justification. Um, you know, there, there, there have been these movements that have arisen within the church that will say this, we believe that we are justified by grace alone and through faith alone in Jesus Christ. That's an orthodox statement. You would agree, that's a totally orthodox statement. But when you listen carefully to the way that they talk about justification, you go, wait a minute, that that's not orthodox. The terminology is, but the substance is not. Uh, for example, some might say that they believe we are justified by the grace of God alone and through faith in Christ alone. But when you listen carefully, they They talk about justification more like it's sanctification, so that we are declared not guilty in the beginning by faith alone, but justification also uh, involves us earning our salvation too, if you dissect really what they're talking about here. I, I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole, but you understand what I'm saying. This is a real danger. In fact, it's probably the most difficult type of false teaching to detect when orthodox terms are used, but in an unorthodox way. And I think we see the same thing going on within the church with the doctrine of Christ where people are using the language of Chalcedon, but they're kind of, they're really changing the meaning of these historic terms so that the doctrine in substance ends up being totally different. There is a spectrum of three views, Wellam says, two revised and one historical the ontological Canonic Christology and the functional Canonic Christology are the two that we're going to look at in detail, and they'll be compared with what Wellum calls the classic view, uh, represented by Chalcedon and its later theological developments. Okay, so Canonicism—we um, learned about it before. It's really this view that um, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity emptied himself in some way of his divinity in in one way or another. He laid aside not just glory or rights or prerogatives by taking to himself a true human nature, but he laid aside divine attributes, you see. He he laid aside his divinity in some way. That's canonicism, and Wellam is wanting us to see that that's really actually quite common in evangelicalism today in different, in different forms. A view that originally, originated nearly two centuries ago, he says, first on the continent and later in the United Kingdom, uh, theologians were attempting to reformulate classic Christology to meet the challenges of the day and to provide a middle way, quote-unquote, between the old orthodoxy and a full embrace of the Enlightenment spirit, which emphasized the importance and supremacy really of reason, um, as with most middle ways, it was rejected by both sides so he 's reminding us that this this theology really arose some time ago, but in an attempt to um, kind of fit in with the spirit of the age, if you will the, the enlightenment spirit, which really you know wanted to make sense of everything in a rational way, uh, and I think Wellham is right when. When these middle ways are put forward, they often fail to meet um, the expectations of both sides. Today, within evangelical theology broadly considered, there is an unmistakable canonic influence resulting in a spectrum of viewpoints. And in this chapter, we outline these newer formulations and argue that evangelicals today should continue to affirm the Catholic, that is lowercase c, universal church. Uh, Christology as biblical and theologically true. So you understand what Wellham's doing here. He's he's taking a close look at some of the um, Christologies that are out there within evangelicalism today, and he's saying we still have a canonic problem, in fact. It just has taken different forms. And he puts forward two forms of evangelical canonicism. Ontological canonic theology. Ontological, it, it, this word is relating to the branch of Metaphysics, dealing with the nature of a being. Metaphysics is considering non-physical things, remember. and So when you hear ontological canonic Christology, we're talking about uh, a form of canonicism which really impacts our understanding of the very nature or, or being of Christ and ultimately of the triune God, as we'll see. So that's the first thing that he wants to deal with ontological canonic Christology, he calls it, and then he abbreviates this with OKC from, from here on out because it's such a mouthful to say, right? In recent years, some evangelical philosophers and theologians rehabilitated points of 19th century canonicism, believing it was dismissed too hastily. They are rethinking Jesus' deity and humanity in canonic terms. Their aim is to offer a viable canonic theory, within the broad parameters of orthodoxy, and three points capture their view over all. So here are the, the, the three main characteristics of OKC. You don't mind if I use the, the abbreviation, do you? Uh, OKC. First, OKC proponents insist that their view is orthodox because they affirm the Trinity, the Son's eternal preexistence and Christ's deity and humanity. So, they affirm all of these things. They they say, we believe in the triune God. We believe that the Son has eternally existed um, and pre-existed creation. And we believe that Christ is fully God and fully man. Yet, they argue that Chalcedon established only the broad boundaries of orthodoxy. For example, Chalcedon, did not define nature or person and thus these terms are open to redefinition. I, when I hear that, it, it makes my skin crawl. Um, and I've seen this before in other theologies, you know. Um, we'll, use, we'll use these terms, uh, in this case nature and person, but because the Chalcedon, Chalcedonian Creed does not define the terms nature and person, you know, we we can rework the definitions a bit. We we can we can toy with the definitions of these terms a bit. So we'll use the terms but toy with the definitions. And I don't know if anybody that holds to this view would speak so bluntly. I'm not trying to put words in their mouth, but I've seen it before with other theologies. You know, historical terms will be picked up and used, but then the the definition of them will be hollowed out and replaced with something else. And I, I think it just brings so much confusion into the church. Is it true that Chalcedon didn't define nature and person? Yeah, probably. The creed wasn't concerned to define the terms nature and person. But what should we do when we're studying a historical document like this? When we when we see the terms nature and person, what should we do, brothers and sisters? Say that Well, these terms aren't really used in Scripture. They're terms that have arisen in the history of the Church in order to describe what is seen in Scripture. I mean, we do ultimately need to go back to Scripture and say, what did the Scripture say? That is the ultimate question, and we'll, we'll do that here in this lesson, in fact, to critique these views. Uh, did you... I was going to say, you,
1: we must ask, what did they
0: mean by these words? Yes. So it, it's not that we can just take these words and make them what we want them to be. We must ask the question, what did those who wrote this creed, th- what were they thinking when they used these terms? We must do the very same thing with our confession of faith, written not so long ago when compared to the Chalcedonian definition. Uh, but we we can't just take our confession of faith and make it to mean what we want it to mean while using these terms. We have to use the terms in a way that is honest in a way that is honest. You, you would agree with me. Um, we have to do the, the work of saying, well what how how was this term Used in the 17th century. And if we say that we subscribe in some way to this confession of faith as a church, um, yes, it's true. The Bible is our ultimate authority, no doubt. This is a, this has a, 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 is a secondary authority. But if a, a document is functioning in a foundational way for an institution, a, a church, a local church, then we have to handle the document in an honest way. We've seen it in our own country, um, brothers and sisters, when it comes to our Constitution. Um, There are some who will say, no, we are bound to this document as it was originally intended. And there are others who who will say they are constitutional, but they really make the thing into a wax nose. You understand? So that they can make it to say what they want it to say. And that is the spirit of our age. That is the spirit of our age. Um, in politics and in the church too. How many people read the Bible and really their their objective is to say here is what it means to me. Th- this This book, it, it is important for it to mean something to you. I'm not denying that. Th- this book needs to be applied by you. And it might have a specific application for you that it does not have for me, but that's something different. It means something particular in what it says, Um, and we have to wrestle with the question of hermeneutics to get at that original meaning. The original human author meant something, and above that, even the divine author meant something, and we have to work hard to understand what that thing is before we can make application for ourselves. So this is the spirit of our age, brothers and sisters. It's a big problem in our civil society. It's a big problem in the church too. And so I'm glad that Wellam is dealing with this. We're dealing with the doctrine of Christ here. We can't play around with it. We can't play around with it. So again, back to our outline. When I read, when I read this little phrase, Chalcedon, which... Is it spelt wrong? Uh, sorry. I cannot spell to save my life. Uh, just, I'll, I'll be vulnerable before you right now. And it, it, my mom is laughing in the back. It's been that way since I was a kid. Um, so I'm fully dependent on spell check, and it probably wasn't working when I, when I did this. Um, not even close, no. <laughs> um, where am I? When I read a phrase like this, Chalcedon did not define nature or person, and thus these terms are open to redefinition. It does make my skin crawl. Second, OKC proposes that in the Incarnation, the Divine Son laid aside specific divine attributes, thus choosing to limit himself to a human life while retaining his divine nature. Okay, This is, this is interesting, and this is problematic. I'll read it again because it's complex. OKC proposes that in the incarnation, so in the person of Christ, the divine son, that is to say the second person of the triune God, laid aside specific divine attributes, thus choosing to limit himself to a human life while retaining his divine nature. Uh, That should sound odd to you, given everything we've learned. You should go, hey, something's not quite right there. In the opinion of some, this was temporary. For others, it is permanent. Wella makes that remark, and I just make a brief note of it here in the outline. OKC, number two, must redefine what a divine nature is. OKC must redefine what a divine nature is in order to pull this move off. OKC rejects Orthodoxy's insistence that all God's attributes are essential to him. No divine attribute can be set aside. God's nature is one and simple. Uh, Remember, I'm outlining in a whole chapter here. You need to read for yourself. Um, This is just a short little summary of what is said here in this chapter. But I hope that you see Wellam's point. He's beginning to critique this ontological, canonic Christology, He's he's noticing that they claim that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, lays aside specific divine attributes but retains His divine nature. That's their claim. And Wellam is saying, wait a minute here, this this is um, going off the rails as it pertains to our doctrine of God. Forget about Christology for a minute. This This is out of bounds when it pertains to our doctrine of God. Because when we talk about God, we cannot distinguish. We cannot make a distinction between the divine nature and divine attributes. We cannot distinguish those things. For God is one and He is simple. So, it's, it's really not too hard to understand. Um, we confess that God is eternal. If I were to say to you that God is no longer eternal, that He has laid aside that attribute, you should say to me, then He is no longer God. Um, we will say that God is omniscient. Eternally so. And don't, don't forget, we have already established this in previous classes. God is unchangeable. Not unchanging, He is unchangeable. So, God is omniscient. And if I came before you and I said, yep, yes, but God has determined... To lay aside his omniscience, his, his all-knowingness, you would then say to me, no, no, Pastor, that is an error because he is no longer God if he is no longer omniscient. Our, our God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, our confession says, rightly so. Chad?
1: So that's his human—he's that's Christ's human nature, not knowing the future, but the Son still knows.
0: Christ yes, the, future. the eternal Son still knows, and I think we'll get to that a little bit. But when you consider all that's taught here and the summary of Calcedon, you see that theologians have wrestled with all of these complex problems, and they have said, you know, here's what we must confess: that in Christ, there's one person—it's the person of the Son acting through two natures that are not corrupted in any way, a, a true full human nature and a true full divine, the true full divine nature. But it's the person of the Son acting according to both, so that when the person of the Son says, "I don't know the hour," he's speaking as the the, the God-Man. He's speaking as it pertains to his human mind, his. You know, and also in other places, will. And so, when Christ says, "Not my will, but your will be done," he's speaking as the divine person through the human will, and that human will is submitting to the will of the Father, etc., etc. And when Christ experiences emotion and weeps, he he weeps not as God, but as man. You understand he, that he's feeling that affection, and what Wellam is saying here is that Chalcedon is is the best thing we have. <laughs> There's still mystery, but this is certainly not better. It's in fact out of bounds for us because from the get-go, it violates just basic sound orthodox um, the, our basic sound orthodox doctrine of God. We we cannot have change in the Triune God. We cannot have Father, Son, or Holy Spirit laying aside divine attributes because to lay aside any divine attribute is to lay aside divinity. God is one. He is simple. We, we can't, it's not that way with us. You, you understand? Human beings change. Like, I can have a certain level of intelligence standing before you now, and tomorrow or whatever, I could have less. I, I don't know. That's a bad example. Um, I could have, let, let's be positive. I could, let's be positive about it. I could have more. I've increased in knowledge. That's a human thing. We, we grow in wisdom and in stature. I'm done growing in stature, but um, <laughs> I can grow in wisdom. Still have hope for that. Um, and Christ did, but not according to his divine nature, according to his human nature. So that's, that's a human thing, not a divine thing. God cannot grow in wisdom, and neither can he lo- lose it, and neither can he gain or, or lose uh, knowledge concerning all things. Joe.
2: Jesus, But, we but, you know, but like it's being expressed, you know, the person, the Christ, the person, the Son, the eternal Son of God, has never needed to grow. He's always had, yeah. had, had all knowledge and everything.
0: everything so. You know, a lot of this comes back to that Philippians passage that says that the Son emptied himself. Right. So, and that is the Greek word kenosis. Okay, he emptied himself. But that passage has been so badly misunderstood, the text says how He has emptied Himself by taking to Himself a human nature. It's not an an emptying Himself or a divesting Himself of the divine nature or of any divine attributes. It's the Son emptying Himself that is being made low and humble by taking to Himself a, a human nature, a human body and soul. He's laying aside not His divine nature nor His divine attributes but His glory and His rights. And the person of the Son came and suffered, not as God, not in the divine nature. The divine nature cannot suffer. The divine nature cannot suffer, but the divine nature, uh, but, but the human nature can. And the person, and we must distinguish distinguish between person and nature. Remember, the person suffered in the human nature. Ben, did you have something? yes and there, there's a great little phrase um oh, someone said it at some point um, but you, what is the passage that and I think I preached on this, but it it, it um it speaks of cry of the son becoming poor for us, so that in him we might become rich. he became poor in such a way that he did not leave lay aside his riches and it's kind of what that what you just said Ben reminded me of that like if if the son of a king um takes the form of a servant he doesn't lay aside his, his, his riches either. You know, he, he lives humbly for a time but in other words it would not be good news for us if the Son of God became poor and laid aside his riches because then he would have nothing to give us. He, he laid aside his riches for a time not by laying aside his divinity or all of his rights as the Son of God but he took the form of a servant so that he might lift us up Into the riches that are eternally and unchangeably his. Um, We're on a big tangent, which is fine. But yeah, Scott. I just wanted to say that the reason
1: that this is such a a significant heresy is because if Christ can, can actually lay aside divine attributes, then he can lay aside divine mercy, he can lay aside divine sovereignty lay aside things that pertain to our salvation. And, yep. and if that's the case, then God is ultimately a gracious God because, yep. let's say, a million you know, eternal years from now, he just decides that he wants to lay aside his mercy. We yep. don't have it anymore. Because God can do that. Which, which that's, that's a horrible implication, so I think that's why this is so
0: significant. Not long ago, Reformed Baptists wrestled significantly with the doctrine of Impassibility. This is the idea that God does not have passions or affections like we have. He does not have a changing emotional state, just like he doesn't have a changing anything. He is pure act. He is the unchangeable and unchanging one. And some would look at that whole debate and say, why does it matter? It matters for the reason that Scott just stated. If God changes, then that's bad news for us. Uh, The fact that he does not change is very good news and that's what makes Him the rock upon which we can stand. It does not make Him cold. It does not make Him hard. We're not saying that He is lacking in love. We're saying that His love and His faithfulness are perfections in Him. In other words, they are filled to the brim and overflowing and they are nevertheless they can be no more. You get it? It's, it's This is a crucial doctrine and, and we're seeing right now um, how our doctrine of god and our doctrine of christ are very much interrelated because we are and and you've noticed this too our anthropology is all entangled in this too right so you have these three major things the doctrine of god the doctrine of christ and the doctrine of man the question of what is man all kind of converging right now for us and and If we have deficiencies in our doctrine of God, if we have deficiencies in our understanding of what man is, we're going to have a hard time understanding Christ. So these doctrines are all tangled up with each other. And so I kind of like it. I feel like we're being forced to think more clearly about all of these things at once as we look at this. Let's continue in the outline and see how far we get. Um, So... Number two, again, OKC must redefine what a divine nature is. OKC rejects orthodoxy's insistence that all God's attributes are essential to him. No divine attribute can be set aside. And before this in the book, I think Wellam explains that within this this, um, school of thought, OKC, ontological canonic Christology, um, they make a distinction between those attributes of God that are essential to him and those that can be laid aside. But we're saying no such distinction can be made within God. You can't do that with God. And how they, you know, which ones they decide are essential and non essential is pretty arbitrary. Um, I think most who hold to this view would say that all of those attributes that are not compatible with human nature. And with human existence are non-essential and can be laid aside. So, what would those be? <laughs> Again, they're not little ones. You know, as if there are any little ones in God. They're things like omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience. All the omnis really are incompatible with human existence. So, they are to be classified, I guess, as non-essential attributes of God. I say that that's that's scary. Um, that that's so false. Three, for this reason, Chalcedon affirmed that in the incarnation the Son retained all his divine attributes. Um, For this reason, Chalcedon affirmed that in the incarnation the Son retained all his divine attributes. Jesus was homoousios with the Father and the Spirit. So that means of the same nature, of the same substance, not homoiousios, which would mean of, of like substance or nature but of the same, the same. That was a huge debate in the early church. Is it homoousios or is it homoiousios Is he of the same substance or is he of a like uh, nature uh, with, the, with the Father and the Spirit? You, you see, this is important. We must say that the Son is fully God. The person of the Son is, acts as the acting subject through the one divine nature. There is no division in God as it pertains to His nature. right? Um, And we learned about that in our study on the doctrine of the Trinity not long ago. 4. OKC applies an essential accidental distinction to God's attributes. So here is where he says it. In Christ the Son sets aside His accidental attributes but remains essentially God. And we say those categories don't work. Uh, what are the accidental attributes of the, that the Sun divests for OKC? That includes any attribute that is inconsistent with human life, for example. There are the, the omnis, okay. so it is in the outline. Um, an accident, and this is me just trying to define terms for you a little bit. An accident is an incidental property of a thing, a reality which is conjoined to a thing, and which can be withdrawn from the thing without substantial alteration. Uh, that is from Moler's Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, which is very helpful. Um, you and I have accidental uh, properties as human beings. We have these, these accidentals. Um, what makes you a human? Well, you have a human nature, body And soul, and within the soul, mind, will, and affections, we all share that in common, but we don't all look the same. We have accidental attributes, you know, attributes that change from person to person. Physically, we look different, um, and even as it pertains to our personality, we 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 have different personalities. And those things can all change with us. And they do throughout our lives. They change from person to person and they change within us throughout our lives. And yet, they're distinct from our nature. Because we're creatures and we change and we grow. That, that's, that's a part of who we are. And what we're wanting to say is that that doesn't work with God. It doesn't work with God. He doesn't have accidental properties because there is only one God and he is he is one he is simple there are God God is not a species of which there are um, many individuals you, you understand he is one of a kind he is the only one but that's not true of all of God's creatures you have trees that share common things that make them trees but there are different kinds of trees and with everything in god 's creation the, the same can be said. you have the one you you have the thing which possesses a certain shared nature, but there there are also many of them, and they they have distinguishing characteristics it's not true of god it, it it's really marvelous to consider okay so we'll move on and see how far we get again. I say, um, third, OKC also redefines what a person is. So not only do they have to redefine what the divine nature is, they, they have to redefine what a person is. For OKC, a person is a distinct center of knowledge, will, love, and action. For OKC, a person is a distinct center of knowledge, will, love, and action. So we've been learning about this. Um, where ought we to locate the will? Where ought we to locate the will? The will here we are not talking about uh, the, the act of willing. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the capacity to will. We're talking about the faculty of will or the function of will. will where should we locate the will? Nature. And in humans where should we locate it specifically soul do you have the capacity to will yes you do do i have the capacity to will yes i do why and and, and we don't will like dogs will do you have the pas- capacity to will in a human way yes why why do we share that in common because of our personhood because of our person? No, because of our nature. Because we have human souls. Do you have the capacity to reason? To think? Do you have a mind? Yes, you do. Is, where do you locate that? Where, where is that capacity um, centered? Again, in the, nat- in the human nature and in the soul. But OKC, again, they're using the term person. Notice. But they're redefining what, a per, what, what person is. They define person as a distinct center of knowledge, will, love, and action. Think of the implications of this view on the doctrine of the Trinity. If will, the capacity to will, is centered in person, and if we now think not of Christ but of the triune God, if will and person go together, how many wills are there within God? Three. That should sound odd to you. How many wills are in God, truly? God has one will. Three persons, one nature. The three persons act through the one will of God. There is one will in God, you see. So that's why all of this has to be wrestled with, and these things have to be defined with great precision, because if you get this wrong, you, you, you veer very quickly into, into heresy. Think of the implications for the doctrine of Christ also. So, you have one person in Christ, and if will is rooted in person, if it's centered there, then Christ has one will, and now we have slipped into monothetism. Is this spelled right? Monothetism. Monothetism. I can't say it. Thank you. Monothelitism. This isn't spelled right either. Is it? It is. I just can't read. Um, Then you have one will in Christ. And does that make sense of the biblical data, to have one will in Christ? No, because there are passages that speak of him submitting to the will of God. Submitting his will to the will of God. Not my will, but your will be done, Christ says. So there are passages that force us to see that there are in fact two wills in the one person of Christ. So, he, it's the person of the Son acting according to His human will, but the divine will is not laid to the side. Um, also, OKC defines person in relation to soul, so that in humans, the soul of the human nature is identified as the person. And in Christ, the Son, the person, becomes the soul of the human body. Why would that be a problem? OKC defines person person in relation to the soul, so that in humans the soul of the human nature is identified as the person. So, so, person and soul are kind of the same. And in Christ, therefore, the Son, that is say the eternal Son, the person becomes the soul of the human being. Why would that be a problem, do you think? Anyone? Doesn't have a human soul. That which is not assumed is not healed. That which is not assumed is not redeemed. Within Christ, then, you, you don't have a, a human soul. You have a human body, and you have the person of the Son possessing it. Do you understand? And it doesn't make sense of the biblical debt data either, where, where Christ is distressed in the Garden of Gethsemane, and He sweats drops of blood even because His distress is so severe. He, he, he weeps over the death of his friend, this, these are human emotions, human experiences. He claims to not know. Well, how could that be if the incarnation is merely this, the person of the sun possessing a human body? No, it's the person of the sun working through a human nature in its entirety, body and soul, which includes mind, will, and affections. So by toying with these terms, um, it, it just things begin to unravel very quickly. Yes, Danny. Does that
2: also have a problem with the crucifixion? The person? The, the line is then on the cross.
0: I think we would want to say that the, the, son of, the Son of God died. He shed his blood for us. The scriptures speak in that way. So the, son, the, the second person of the Trinity suffered <coughs> and died for us shed His blood for us. And how did He do it? Through His humanity. Through His humanity that He assumed. Does God have blood? The divine nature have blood? No. Can the divine nature die in any sense? No. Can the divine nature suffer in any sense? No. But by assuming a human nature, body and soul, the Son lived... A truly human life for us, the person of the Son. It's not the divine nature that did it. It's the person of the Son who lived a truly human life for us in order to redeem us, according to his humanity. Yes, Chad? So James says that God
1: himself tempts no man and he cannot be tempted, right? Right. But Satan tempts Jesus. Yes. So that means Jesus must be fully
0: man. Yes. I was just thinking about that too. No, I love it. I mean, this is what we have to do. We have to go, does this system make sense of the whole of what Scripture says, or does it run into roadblocks? And there's another one. God can't be tempted. So how is Jesus tempted if He is God? Well, He is God in the sense He's the person of the Son in two natures. So when Satan tempted Jesus, he tempted the person of the Son, but not according to the divine nature, according to the human nature. And he did not fail. Chuck, did you have something? Did I see a hand? Yes.
2: Uh, My question or statement is, from the birth of Jesus up until the point of when he walked out out of the grave, was there any time that he was not in human nature that his divine nature, was there any time that divine nature took place in between those two periods, 33?
0: Help help me to understand the the question. Was was there any time in which... He
2: was not completely in human uh, nature, Jesus.
0: No. From the moment of conception to this present day, Christ is the the second person of the triune God as the God-man and for all eternity.
2: And, And then the other side of that question. While he was here on earth, was he 100% human nature?
0: Yes, body and...
2: Divine nature? No,
0: both. 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 One person, two natures, and these two natures are full and complete and not corrupted in any way.
2: Was, Was there any time on his 33 years as human nature that he... What's the word? Interjected or became divine and used his divinity, his divine nature to whatever the situation. I can't think of one, but I, I don't
0: know. So That's my question. It, it's one person acting through two natures. The person is the subject who acts, and Christ has two natures so that. There are times when, of course, we can say, well, he's acting there according to his human nature. Yes, he's not giving up his divine nature. It's not that there's this like shifting around within Christ or mixture or anything like that. But Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, he does not change. But there are moments where we could say, there he is clearly acting according to his human nature when he weeps when he bleeds, uh, when, he th- when he's hungry and thirsty, uh, when he sweats drops of blood, uh, when he's tempted in the wilderness. We, we may say th- this is clearly the human nature in play. But it's the one person who's experiencing all these things. The Son of God. The, the second person of the Trinity. And then there are to, to, to answer your question, there are other times where we go this is clearly something that Christ is doing according to his divine nature, uh, when he heals, when he walks on water, when he, when he heals, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, uh, when, when he claims to have the authority to forgive sins, um, when he shows that he does know the future, that he can see um, people sitting under a fig tree when he's not present. Who was that? Um, Philip? Was it? I don't know. Um, I've got to be careful. I expose my ignorance, and it's not good for me. But uh, he, knows the
1: hearts
0: of men. he knows the hearts of men.
1: He tells that lady, like, you have seven
0: legs. Yeah, yeah. Well, right. Never met her before, but he, you understand it, it, it. It's it's the person of the Son acting through both of these natures. And we may kind of distinguish them, but we can't divide up these actions. All of them are rightly said to be the actions of Jesus Christ. Do you understand? They're all the actions of Jesus Christ. We need not divide Christ up into two, because all of these actions find their union in the person, not in the natures, but in the person of the Son. Scott, did you have something? Read the Gospels and, and see that all of these um, these miracles are they're they're described as signs. They're they're done to prove that Jesus is who he is, um, the the, the God Man. Uh, ben, did you have something real quick? Yeah. Uh, it's
1: not it's not in you know choosing like flipping a switch like my my human nature and my divine nature
0: yeah. they are both present and working together um and we see yeah. that demonstrated throughout his thirty three years. I think that's a great point. We we can't see Christ as split radically. But but again I'll ask you, where is the union found? Where where is the union of Christ found? Not in the natures they're not mixed, but in the person of the Son, acting as the acting subject through these two natures. So we're out of time. This is good. Um, on the schedule, it said we would not meet next Sunday. We'll meet next Sunday. I thought I was going to be gone up north. I'm not going to be gone up north. So it works out. We'll just finish this lesson next Sunday. We'll stay right on track. I really appreciate the interaction, guys, guys and gals. It's, it's great. Um, let's say a, a quick prayer, and then we'll get ready for corporate worship. Father in heaven... We confess to you that these things are hard for us to understand. But your word is clear. You have spoken to us in the scriptures. So help us to be students of the word and to make sense of all that you have revealed to us. Help us to see also that these doctrines do matter. So strengthen us as it pertains to our understanding of you, O God. Strengthen our understanding of Christ, whom you have sent. Strengthen even our understanding of ourselves that we would know what it is to be human. And may we come to greater confidence that indeed, God, You have provided a Redeemer for us, Christ the Lord, the God-man. We thank You for Him. In His name we pray. Amen. Amen.